Well, we are going to be delving into the topic of corporate worship. We, uh, some of us were in the, the earlier hour and we dug into that concept a little bit. And we're going to further that conversation, that discussion in the scriptures today. I'd like to begin with just a, an illustration. The, the year 2020, I mean, it's going to be re- memorable for many of us for countless reasons, right? We know uh, a contentious election, COVID-19, wildfires out west, hurricanes in the Gulf Coast, tornadoes in Iowa, murder hornets, you name it. I mean, <laughs> it seemed 2020 brought it all. Uh, but some of us have already forgotten that tragic death that headed off the year at the end of January of uh, Laker legend, basketball legend, Kobe Bryant and his 13-year-old daughter, Gianna, as their helicopter crashed in the hills of Calabasas, California in January of last year. And while the circumstances of that uh, crash are horrific, I remember watching the news as details were unfolding, and very early on, something struck me as unusual. The excessive amount of worship terminology that was being used to describe people's reflections of this man. It's really not up for debate as to whether sports is idolized and even worshipped in our culture. It just is, right? I think we can acknowledge that. But this was abundantly evident in the days following Kobe's death. A phrase I heard dozens of times, Kobe Bryant is one of those transcendent athletes, meaning his contribution to the world and his qualities ascended far beyond his athletic accomplishments. As the Grammy Awards took place the same night as Kobe's death in the Staples Center in Los Angeles, one of the speakers referenced Bryant's death by saying how fitting it was to remember a man in the house that he built. Not knowing what else to do and where to go, tens of thousands of people began to flock to the Staples Center to get near the physical location where the glory of Kobe's career shone the brightest. Shrines of all size memorializing his legacy with handwritten prayers and tributes to Kobe's legacy began to just appear out of nowhere around the Staples Center, so much so that the Staples Center had to cancel the Lakers' upcoming home game due to this outpouring of love and affection for their fallen hero. Later that week, The Lakers hosted a home game, and at the beginning of the game, there was a celebration to honor Kobe. And each Laker player was introduced as Kobe Bryant. It was as if to say, all that matters in this moment is union with Kobe. Union with Kobe. Even my multi-million dollar contract and the name and the brand that I've built, each one of those Laker players are saying, that's not what's important. I want to be united in that guy. His glory is all that matters. And if we can separate ourselves for just a moment from the tragedy of that horrific incident, we see a powerful illustration of the human heart's propensity for worship. From the shrines, to the handwritten prayers, to the hunger to draw near to the house that Kobe built. And for every Laker player to find hope through union with Kobe, 
adopting his name, wearing it on their jersey, and revering his former glory. There is nothing else we can call that than corporate worship. For the same reason, everyone didn't just simply honor Kobe in their homes, but they felt the need to assemble in order to escalate and elevate the power of that tribute. God is supremely glorified in splendor when his people unite to lift praises to his name, not simply confining their worship to private, isolated moments, as important and helpful and essential as those are. Brothers and sisters, we assemble to speak prayers to a God who hears and to hear from a God who speaks. We find ultimate hope through union, not with a son of Adam, but with the son of God. We corporately worship a transcendent God in and with the house that he has built and is building, his temple. We corporately worship, and what a privilege is ours to be welcomed into this gift. But why is assembling in a particular place, in a particular time, so apparently innately hardwired in us as as people? Is it just simply what our culture calls FOMO? Just a fear of missing out? We just want to be where the action is? Is it nothing more than that? Well, if it can be shown that there is something so indelibly pressed into us as humans who are made in the image of God, that we find a a fullness to our created purpose in worshiping our triune God, not merely by ourselves, but among the saints, among the Lord's people, that we may have picked up on the trail of something that is incredibly significant to understanding the whole of the biblical story. I think this is the case. One of the greatest theologians from Princeton Seminary from the last century, Gerhardus Voss, he wrote time and again how all the themes in the scriptures grow with a seed-like sufficiency into a mighty oak tree of biblical revelation, and that all the themes in the scriptures find themselves in their embryonic beginnings, and they grow into something glorious and majestic, and that we would do well to read our Bibles with the end in sight, to see where that's going. This morning, I hope to briefly demonstrate how the theme of biblical worship unfolds and then culminates and flourishes and flowers into the glorious gift of corporate worship. That's the trajectory we're going. And unlike, I know, a typical sermon probably where you're in one specific passage, I'm going to be drawing upon a lot of probably just your general understanding of of the Bible and and just hopping here and there, okay? So track with me. It's going to be a little different in that way, a little bit more survey and topical. But let's, let's begin with just looking at corporate worship in creation. So in eternity past, God enjoyed an untarnished pleasure of a worshiping community within the fellowship of the Godhead. At creation, God's world was designed to be ruled in God's way and in subjection to God's reign over everything. As God's spirit hovers over the waters, creation stirs with an anticipation of what glory is about to unfold. In Eden, 
God consecrates a location in which his presence would be accessed and enjoyed in a personal manner. And in a very real sense, Adam is created to lead all of humanity in the worship of God. The cultural mandate given to Adam in Genesis chapter 1 invariably carries a command that involves building a world that would reverberate with the worship of God. And in his kindness, God places Adam and Eve in a garden where they are charged to work and to keep it, presumably expanding Eden to the ends of the earth so God's glory may fill it all. As Habakkuk chapter 2 says, that the knowledge of the glory of God would fill the earth as the waters fill the sea. This was the vision of what Eden would not remain to be, but become. One author notes, he says, Eden is a place of God's presence. And a place of God's presence is a place of worship. The expansion of Eden, therefore, is an expansion of worship. Worship fuels the mission of Eden. Bearers of the image of God reflect his presence and worship and are propelled forward in their mission to fill the earth with reflections of God's glory. Little ambassadors to the ends of the earth representing their God. The point being made here by these authors is so clearly that the essential purpose of Eden is to continually enlarge the worship of God so his presence might dwell among an ever-enlargening number of his image bearers. Edenic worship, first consisting of God and two humans, was intended to multiply so that God's glory would fill it all. So from the opening chapters of the Bible, corporate worship is envisioned as the goal of creation. We might go a step further by suggesting that the pronouncement of the the first mention of the gospel, the proto-evangelium in Genesis 3.15, provides this foundation that it is not merely corporate worship, but Christ-centered corporate worship as the climax of God's creation just prior to Adam and Eve's eastward exit from Eden, the promise is given that there would come one born of a woman who would crush the serpent's head. The rescue of an Edenic worshiping community is underway. And we're barely three chapters into the story. We then start to see corporate worship under the old covenant. And just prior to that, we could say under the old in the Old Testament, in the centuries and the millennia to follow Adam and, Eden, Adam and Eve's expulsion from Eden, humanity will prove to follow in the footsteps of their first parents time and again. And yet, despite mankind's perpetual love affair with sin and idolatry, God's unassailable plan to create this worshiping community carries onward. We see even in Genesis chapter 4, the story of Cain and Abel. As early as this chapter, Cain murders his brother Abel over a dispute regarding acceptable worship. One scholar says that the, the reader of Genesis is immediately taught a deeply important lesson regarding worship. Namely, that God looks upon the offering through the lens of the worshiper's heart. He does not look at the worshiper through the lens of what he produces for God. We see even in the life of Abraham, it displays another covenantal mile marker along the biblical storyline. 
forming a worshiping community and expanding the glory of God's name throughout the earth. In Genesis 12, Abram hears the voice of God and obeys the Lord's call to leave his country. And it's false worship in pursuit of, as Hebrews will tell us, a city that cannot be shaken, whose builder and maker is God. By faith, Abram obeys, trusting that God will indeed provide land, a blessing, and the promise of a great nation. Abram was a man of the tent and the altar, it's been said. Wherever he pitched his tent, he built an altar in order that he might express his faith through worship. God's promise to Abraham involves offspring that would outnumber the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore. And the promise of offspring, I mean, this promise defies logic, for it comes to pass by miraculous means through a 90-year-old wife. Amazing. Innumerable offspring invariably means innumerable worshipers of God. After encountering the presence of God, we move on to the story of Moses and his pivotal role in the story. After God's presence is revealed to him in the burning bush, in Exodus chapter 3, Moses leads his people uh, through the Red Sea as they witness the destruction of God's enemies. The exodus of Israel out of slavery becomes a defining act of national deliverance that the whole Bible is going to look to as an emblematic freeing of his people from bondage. But the exodus was simply the amazing journey to get us somewhere. And where is it leading us? To Mount Sinai. The Lord officially constitutes Israel as a people by giving them his law and writing it upon tablets of stone. Sinai represents a gradations of holiness at the mountain as, as encroachment on the base of the mountain carries a capital offense. It is a serious thing to draw near to God. As one man writes, Sinai served two purposes, to guard the sanctity of the place and to protect the people from the full dose of the divine holiness of God, which would certainly be lethal. Although the 70 elders were given a special audience before the Lord to feast in his presence, Moses alone could ascend the mountain to speak with God face to face. Another person mentions that this mountain peak liturgy, the order of worship, was present at Mount Sinai. A liturgy was formed that became the basic pattern of Israel's worship in the future. The liturgy reflected the structure of worship in Eden. There was a call, response, and a meal. Only now it included cleansing through sacrifice and mediated through a prophet priest. So what was implicit in Eden when God clothed Adam and Eve with animal skins was now explicit at Mount Sinai. Sacrifice was essential to the worship of God. And this is how the Old Testament worship service organically developed. So under Moses and then following Mount Sinai, Israel's corporate worship is significantly upgraded as God graciously gives new revelation. And while it sometimes is common for Christians to think negatively about the Old Covenant, as another man points out, he says, the more detailed the regulations, the less was left to guesswork, and hence the greater the grace. The more 
the divine sovereign speaks to his people, the less it's left up to them to go, I don't know what he wants. I, don't, I hope I please him today. The more revelation, the more grace. And such is true of God's gift of the old covenant law. And yet, sadly, just as covenant-breaking forfeited fellowship with God in the garden, Israel's idolatry would once again poison the joy of corporate worship in God's presence. We see then in the, the tabernacle, God's gift of the tabernacle, the blinding glory revealed at Mount Sinai brought great fear to the hearts of many Israelites, and it should. Nevertheless, leaving Mount Sinai has raised the question of, in Israelites' minds, does this mean we're leaving God behind? Is he bound to that mountain? What will happen? But Yahweh is not like the territorially bound gods of the ancient world. No. God's relational presence comes to Israel through portable means. It was portable, sacred space. Exodus 25 outlines God's commands for how that tabernacle should be built. What accoutrements should it should include, a chest, a table for food, a lampstand, and how Israel must honor God's prescribed means for approaching him, lest they experience his judgment. And this tabernacle is also repeatedly referred to as the tent of meeting. The tent of meeting. For this was sacred space. Moses spoke with God. The tabernacle marks a pivotal shift in where Yahweh's presence could be found and how God precisely would be worshipped. So God meets with his people at the mercy seat, guarded by cherubim with outstretched wings, an undeniable reminder of something else, the angels who guarded entry to Eden. And in the courtyard, burnt offerings are made, sins are forgiven, and, and thanksgiving is rendered in the presence of God. So the worship of God's name is both growing in its sophistication and complexity, we might say, but also in terms of its sheer volume of the number of worshipers of God's people is growing and ever enlarging. We see the temple display God's glory and signify God's presence, what we just read this morning in our Old Testament reading from 2 Chronicles. In time, Israel eventually conquers its enemies and takes the promised land and fulfillment of God's covenant to Abraham. I think you've been trekking your way through the book of Joshua, which outlines that story in recent months. But God's on-the-go presence in the tabernacle would take up permanent resonance in Jerusalem. And King Solomon dedicates the completion to the Lord while observing the glory cloud fill the temple with spectacular fashion. So pilgrims traveled from far and wide to behold the glory of the Lord in this temple, foreshadowing and prefiguring an eternal worship in which all the nations will be drawn together in unified worship. As God's holy people, Israel assembles upon sacred space to worship before a holy God. Worship is growing. We see then corporate worship under the new covenant. And with the coming of Messiah, the terms of how God relates to humanity drastically change. And we read this as well in John chapter 4, just a few moments ago. 
John's gospel begins with a confession that God the Father, through Jesus, creates all things. So in other words, Eden's chief architect has taken up flesh so he might be the tabernacle among which sinful people are refashioned and remade into image or into glory bearers that expand Eden's reach to the end of the earth. Wow. This is this isn't theoretical stuff brothers and sisters. This is like you live by these truths. They are true and this is amazing stuff. But how is this plan to be carried out? Well, as the epistles graciously tell us, it is through the unveiling of the mystery of the gospel that we Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promises of Jesus Christ through the gospel, Ephesians 3.6. This mystery hidden for ages in God is now revealed so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God would go public. The wisdom of God would be known. So to summarize, under the new covenant, the church is the vehicle that enjoys the presence of God when she gathers for corporate worship. It is the church that carries out the mission of expanding God's temple dwelling by multiplying Christ's image bearers in all places until the Lord returns. We see Jesus teaching in John chapter 4 that he is replacing what the temple was intended to do and be. Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, Believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. So in Jesus, a significant change happens. All that was prefigured and foreshadowed under the old covenant, sacrifices, altars, temples, priests, etc., is fulfilled in him. Corporate worship finds its ultimate locale in the person of Jesus. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6 that believers are individually referred to as temples, indwelt by God's Spirit. And this is the foundation for Paul's reasoning for why Christians should remain morally pure. For they are not their own. They have been bought with a price. And they are called to glorify God in their bodies. But furthermore, both 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, Paul refers to the entire Christian community as the temple of God. So these churches consisting of individual saints who are to, in every place, call upon the name of the Lord, the significance there is, lies that in the hallowing of God's name is no longer limited to temple worship in a, in a one space, but occurs wherever the people of the Lord lift and call upon his name. The Apostle Paul continues, in Ephesians 2, designated Christians as God's house, and Christ is the cornerstone. The Apostle Peter says similarly in chapter 2 that Christians are a spiritual house and a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. What the physical temple was to Israel, the church as a spiritual community has become to the world the holy residence of God indwelt by his spirit.
So the church fundamentally in its individual parts and collectively as a whole is the dwelling place of God where unhindered fellowship with God happens only through Christ. One of my favorite definitions of of the church is this. The church is the covenant assembly of the triune king called of God from all nations in order to be his holy sanctuary and to worship him or and to serve him as a kingdom of priests. That we might be the holy sanctuary of God that because we are not united to Kobe, but we are united with Jesus. But that's not all. We're not done. It gets better. Hebrews 7 through 10 reveals how the old covenant shadows were themselves copies of heavenly realities. So in other words, descriptions for how to build the temple and how God should be worshipped under the old covenant were indeed copies of heavenly realities. These realities are depicted for us in Revelation 21 as the dimensions of the new Jerusalem that measure up into a ginormous macro-level holy of holies described in the Mosaic Law. So it would appear that God's eternal temple is one colossal holy of holies where we know no barriers between God and his people. So while Christians may rightly be referred to as individual temples themselves, Revelation 1 refers to the saints as a kingdom and priest to God the Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. This is a restatement of Exodus 19, which bookends the maturing of that biblical idea, underscoring the church's eternal vocation. What will you do forever, brothers and sisters? You will be a kingdom of priests. What do priests do? They serve God in his holy presence. You have a job for eternity, and it is glorious. You get to be a temple servant of the one true king of all. That's a staggering thought. And when taken together in its thematic fullness and a eternal, long-looking, eschatological corporate worship centers on serving God in his holy presence, praising Christ the Redeemer, marveling at God's fulfillment of every promise and every purpose, enjoying fellowship around the marriage supper of the Lamb, and relishing God's relational presence in the new Jerusalem. The climax of biblical worship is found in experiencing these realities alongside the countless, innumerable, blood-bought saints of the Lord, purchased from Christ, by Christ from every tribe, tongue, and nation. This is the glorious splendor of corporate worship consummated in the age to come. Now, why do you need to know that? Is it practical? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Let me give you a couple reasons why. Three, to be exact. First, because corporate worship is the end for which God created the world. Can't really say a bigger statement than that. That's why it's important for you to know. What begins in singularity with Adam and then Eve 
grows and flourishes into a majestic plurality of innumerable saints who, trusting in the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, ever with the sons of light, blessing, honor, glory, might. We just sung that. Brought me to tears. That is where we're going. That is our great goal. Corporate worship is the fulfillment of biblical worship. So if this is true, our present participation in this gathering right near, we might need to revalue it. We might need to recalibrate how we think about what God is doing when the saints gather on the Lord's day. A unique grace is ours. It signals another meeting, a greater, more fuller meeting that is yet to come. Second reason, because corporate worship ceremonially grounds believers in our present and future vocation. As I mentioned before, as temple servants, joyfully serving God in his holy presence. Knowing that I serve the Lord alongside the rest of the Lord's people as a kingdom of priests forever provides all the motivation I could ever need to be cultivating regularly in your life the discipline of expending yourselves for the cause of Christ and his kingdom. Busy yourself, labor, pour your life into the Lord, his purposes, and his church. You will never regret it because you will never love it more than he does. Last reason why this is significant for us. Because corporate worship represents, it puts forward each Lord's Day, the finished work of Christ through the scripturally ordained means of grace, through singing to one another, baptism and the Lord's Supper, preaching, scripture reading, prayer. It's a rehearsing of the glory of the gospel week after week after week after week. And you need that or you will shrivel up and die, brothers and sisters. You need to continually be rehearsing the glories of the gospel in order that you might not only survive, but, but thrive and grow in your love for Christ. You'll erect idols of your own making. You'll intoxicate yourself with your own law-keeping. And you'll forget that your standing is solely as a blood-bought child adopted by the one true king. This assures God's people of their pardon and forgiveness in Christ and their confidence to approach the Lord in faith that he will hear them and accept their worship on the grounds of Christ's finished work. By representing before our eyes and before the Lord for his own glory, Christ's conquering work over our sins, we help one another hold fast to our confession that Jesus is Lord and to help stimulate one another to love and to good deeds, as Hebrews says. So we have the privilege now to remember Christ's death, burial, and resurrection through the symbols that he has ordained for us in the Lord's table. This meal is reserved for the gathered assembly and loses its meaning if we seek to do it in another way or context, as if it's just another me and Jesus moment. This is a gift for the people of the Lord. This meal is about the church for whom the Savior shed his blood. It's about the the tiny morsel of food that whets your appetite for a greater meal, the marriage supper of the Lamb. 
So as we partake together, recognize the people of God as the temple in which God dwells and the sacred space that this is mediated to us by our perfect prophet, priest, and king. So let's worship as we remember our Savior in the elements as Phil comes to lead us.